All of us in the youth ministry world have heard the experts tell us about the differences in generations. We have to realize that all of these statements are generalizations that are sometimes accurate and helpful and sometimes not so accurate and less than helpful. What should we think about generational theory? And how can we as people who care about and love kids use it with wisdom and discernment in our youth ministries? Listen in as I chat with my friend Crystal Curgis and three of our youth worker friends about the good, the bad, and the ugly of generational theory on this episode of Youth Culture Matters. From the Center for Parent Youth Understanding, this is Youth Culture Matters. If you're a parent, youth worker, educator, counselor, grandparent, or anyone else who cares about kids, we're glad you've joined us for this practical, informative, and hope-filled podcast. This is a place where together we talk and think Christianly about the rapidly changing world of today's children, teens, and young adults. Well, welcome everybody to another episode of Youth Culture Matters. I'm Walt Mueller here at CPYU, and today we're going to have a conversation about something that's been around. Well, I really think it jumped on to the to the map in some big ways back in the late 80s and certainly through the 1990s. I have a stack of books next to me that uh, is evidence of that as I was reading through those over the years. We're going to be talking about generational theory. Is it a good thing? Is it a helpful thing? Uh, what are the benefits of it? Are there some negatives? Because we hear constantly about, especially in youth ministry, you know, this next generation or the emerging generation, and we know that generations over the years have been labeled. We're making some shifts now from ministering to Generation Z to now gener- uh, the next generation, which they, they go by a variety of names that people have labeled them. That's all part of generational theory. We're going to talk a little bit about Jean Twenge and her recent book, Generations, where she labels them polars, those kids who are uh, starting to to come into our ministries, in our, in our children's ministries now for sure. And joining me in this, uh, we have an esteemed group of folks who are going to engage in the conversation. First off, my friend Crystal Curgis. Crystal, welcome. Hello. Thank you. Yeah, those those of you who are longtime youth workers who have been at any of the youth worker conventions, uh, youth worker training events, you've probably sat in on some of Crystal's training. She's written a lot about uh, adolescence and has got some great great thoughts on that. You may, Crystal. By the way, well, tell us first. You know what you're what you're doing vocationally now, and then a little bit of some of your your hobbies. We love your hobbies, right? Uh, I serve as the director of discipleship content and partnerships for Young Life. My husband has worked for Young Life for a long time. <clears throat> I worked for them for about the last five years. Um, so creating content that youth workers can use in their relationships with teenagers, going deeper with Jesus. My hobbies, in large and general, are books. <laughs> uh, C.S. Lewis is not a hobby. It's more of a central highlight of life for me. Obsession. And then obsession. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough, Walt. It's a good one. Um, it is a good one. And then my sort of my academic life was in the literary field, but I was a historian. And so I did a lot of work on the history of adolescence. So we have talked in generations for quite a long time, but it was just whichever gen- whichever kids were in the sort of the adolescent stage of life, that was the rising generation. 
and they would they were called that for hundreds of years. That's what they were referred to. Hmm. Well, good. Well, we're gonna we're gonna lean into that a little bit. So, um, and then also joining us, uh, our friend Jess Van Rees from British Columbia. Jess, welcome. Jess is one of our CPYU research fellows. Thanks for having me. Excited to be a part of the conversation. And and Jess, uh, what generation are you a part of? If we go, by I the would wheels. be considered the high end of Gen Z. Okay. I'm a younger. So, okay. I'm yeah. a I'm a baby boomer. Chris Wagner here in the studio. What are you? We talked about this, right? You're uh, it's technically most of the time I fall under millennial, but I don't because I was born in '81. Yeah, uh, and often that started in '80. But I don't fit the millennial stereotypes in any no. way whatsoever. No, you don't. We're actually trying to figure out what stereotype you do fit. So, <laughs> Generation Have Wagner, Generation W, Generation Wagner, <laughs> right? So, Crystal, what? Uh, I'm going to ask you your age. It's okay. What, what generation? I, yeah, I was born in 63. So this year was oh, my yeah. 60th birthday. And I'm one of those, I like fall on, theoretically, sometimes I'm a boomer, yeah. like the very end of it. And then what's the one that comes after that? Well, Gen X. Yeah, I I am, I was born in 1963. That's my generational yeah, identity. Yeah, right. So this is, this is one of the problems with generational theory, because if you go to the last day of December, in uh, 1964, you're a boomer, but if you were born the next day, now you're an Xer, right? So that's that's kind of the problem with some of these parameters. But we'll unpack that. And and some of them are short enough that you really can be when they were stretched out a little longer, the same generation as your parents. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. And then Tim McAlpine's joining us from another Canadian from Calgary. He's a big time hockey fan. Tim's also one of our research fellows, and Tim. I know we've had you on before, but go ahead and tell people what you're doing there. Uh, yeah, joy to be with you. Uh, I work as the uh, director of faith formation at a Christian school here in Calgary. Awesome. Awesome. Well, good. Well, uh, so let me let me just make a couple of comments, a couple more comments about uh, generations, generational theory. I mentioned Gene Twenge's book, which came out earlier this year. It's called Generations. Uh, the Real Differences Between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers, and Silence, and What They Mean for America's Future. Uh, I love what Jean Twenge writes. She's a researcher at San Diego State University. Some of you are familiar with her books on narcissism. She had one called Generation Me. Um, the one before this was iGen, which was really good. We've required a lot of our youth ministry students to read that book, and it's been very helpful. One of the things I like about her is she's real. she really is data-based, but she also has good sense, and she does not hold back. Anybody who reads what she has written, you, you're aware that, that she tells it like it is, and she does that in this book, too. Now, this one's a little bit different. I read it. It's a little more cumbersome. I, just out of curiosity, have any of you read this book or— no? Nobody's, nobody's read it. So I, I am recommending it, but I'm saying this is not— you know, one that's going to grab your brain and you're going to sit there for hours and you just suddenly look up and go, wow, where did the time go? It's very data-based and she's looking at all these studies. I mean, she has like a, a, a pool of, I think it's 39 or 29 million subjects um, in, in uh, all these lo longitudinal studies that have gone on for so long, uh, almost 30 studies. And so she's unpacking a lot of data to look for commonalities and things. And I'll explain a little bit of where she's gone with this, but this really sparked 
my thinking because uh, over the years I leaned into generational theory and was trying to understand it, especially in the 1990s, early on with CPYU. Uh, a lot was written. Many have read books by Neil Howe and Bill Strauss, um, 13th Gen, The Fourth Turning, Millennials Rising. There's others they've written as well. And I think as they were writing about this and making generational theory more popular, a lot of Christians then started to weigh in. So I pulled some books off my shelf. Now, one is called The Ambitious Generation, America's Teenagers, Motivated but Directionless. That was by Barbara Schneider, David Stevenson, not written from a Christian perspective. But then Wendy Murray, Wendy, uh, Murray Zobo wrote a book published by InterVarsity Press called Generation 2K, What Parents and Others Need to Know About Millennials. It seems like the millennials were really the big deal uh, Generation Next, What You Know About Today's Youth by George Barna, uh, a really helpful book that I still recommend is one by William Mahidi and Janet Bernardi. Janet Bernardi, I believe, worked with, um, she, she, well, she's, uh, she did campus ministry. Mahidi was a, a counselor, and, and he was counseling Vietnam War vets, discovered that the same kind of trauma, the, the PTSD that they were experiencing, he was seeing in Gen Xers. So they wrote this book together called A Generation Alone, Xers Making a Place in the World. That that was very helpful. Uh, Dave, Over, Dave Overholt and James Penner, a couple of Canadians I know, wrote one called Soul Searching, the Millennial Generation. Just a couple more here. Tim Selleck, Dieter Zander. This was a big one back in the 90s. Uh, Inside the Soul of a New Generation insights and strategies for reaching busters that's gen x and then uh tom Rainier wrote the bridger generation so those are just a sampling of the books there was so much being written and so i think we really started to lean into this and after i read uh, twangy's book i got to thinking you know we lean too much into this in fact i was on a um a panel at a youth ministry conference in the southeast about a month and a half ago and one of the questions that they leaned into is, you know, like if if you had the audience of all the youth workers in the world, you could say one thing, what's the wisdom you would give them? And one of the panelists talked about, you know, leaning into generational theory and then, you know, rattled off a bunch of characteristics. And I thought that's helpful, but it can also be not helpful because if that's who we believe our kids are, we don't give them any latitude to be anything else. And so that's one of my critiques. So I wrote this little piece uh, just a couple sentences. I'll, I'll read this. I posted this on social media. Generational theory and studies are a relatively new discipline. For those of us in youth ministry, they can be helpful in painting an overarching general picture. However, if we lean too fully into these generalizations, we might assume a posture of catering to the emerging generations and encouraging them to live further and further into the stereotypes rather than correcting them with the truth about God's good design for his image bearers. What I was trying to say there was, you know, basically, you know, we, we just affirm kids say, well, that's who they are, right? That's who they are. We don't think a whole lot about maybe the who they are is not who they should be, and then, therefore, we don't minister to them or, or perhaps challenge them or encourage them in the ways that we should. So, Crystal, you saw that, and then you included a link to something you had sent out to all your— Young Life folks titled Thinking Outside the Box, Personalizing Generational Stereotypes. I read it. I thought, this is good. We, got, we have to do a podcast. This will be so helpful to parents and youth workers. So can you just summarize a little bit of what you said in that? I know we'll unpack more of it as we move on. Yeah, I, I think 
the basic thing is most people in youth ministry are about not labeling kids, like getting to know kids individually. And then on the other hand, we're doing that often through the lens of generational theory, which labels and boxes kids. It's like exactly the opposite of what we say we want to be doing. So I just like you, I'm concerned that we get all caught up in the new ideas that come out and how interesting they are. And we end up knowing more about Gen Z or whatever generation it was when someone was in youth ministry. We know more about that than we might know our kids individually. Yeah. And that it it tends to, it leads to the possibility of boxing them up and labeling them and not doing the very thing that we are in youth ministry to do, which is know them as individuals and love them as individuals and minister to them as individuals. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the problem, you know, as I think about reading these things and people who lean into this, and there's articles popping up constantly by uh, folks who are youth ministry practitioners or training uh, trainers that talk about generational theory. And if we go into the room with a group of teenagers, having read all this, these preconceived notions, we see them through that lens rather than really seeing them for who they are. So let me go to Jess and Tim, and I'm just going to throw this question out to you, you know, in regards to generational theory, have either of you read much or have you lived into this? And if so, how has it been helpful and maybe not so helpful? And I don't care who goes first. Yeah, I can go first. Um, I think, I don't think in my cultural or like my current church context, it's a huge conversation, but it is, yeah, you see it all over media. It's like, oh, classic Gen Z, classic millennial, classic boomer, and just yeah, the quickness to put people in boxes. What I did really appreciate though, working with parents um, in my past youth ministry context, Crystal, you mentioned this I, in one of your articles I was reading, I think you read, wrote a couple or anyway, I read this from what you said is the fact that we tend to focus on adolescents and young adults. This is some kind of mystery of like, there's someone that we have to figure out and it's easier to figure out the mystery by reading books on someone rather than just getting to know them. And I think I notice that lots with parents of uh, they're seeing their kids are a mystery to them. They qu can't quite understand them. Um, and then they will tend to read more Gen Z books or listen to Gen Z um, podcasts to try to understand their kids in the cultural moment rather than just asking questions. So I think that's kind of where I saw it more is like interacting with parents um, and just the tendency to read about someone rather than just getting to know them. And it is helpful to read about them, but also to ask questions about your kids. Yeah, that's good. Tim, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hadn't read a ton outside of... Um you know, maybe some sarcastic comments about, you know, the younger generations um, in regards to their ability to persevere. Uh, I remember even in college one time, just a, just a passing comment being made, well, there's studies out there that are saying generations change every 18 months was kind of like, and, and at the time kind of like, well, I don't know what that means, but, but I, I, uh, I find, um, in my context anyways, like we are schools K to nine. So it's specifically the junior high kids that, that I work with where, um, yeah, I would, I would have experienced more kids leaning into a generational theory identity. So this is who we are. This is kind of, and almost to a degree, neglecting any sort of 
biblical understanding of yeah imago day what god says in his word about who they are and uh uh yeah i but i think um i love what was already been said i think you know getting to know these kids individuals is is a crucial thing because i you know i have some students in grade nine that uh, i would label they are old souls they've got this maturity about them they, they would fit in really well with the millennial crowd at 14 if you will you know and and so uh yeah, I'm really looking forward to the conversation, yeah. but that's been my experience up to this point. Yeah, that's interesting what you said there, you know, that a middle schooler would be self-aware of generational theory in terms of how they're being labeled, and this is who we are, which can become, I think, in many ways just an excuse, um, you know, to be that way as opposed to, and this was one of my concerns, right? I think we need to be challenged, all of us, out of our you know, broken desires and sin patterns, things like that, rather than just saying, well, this is, this is who I am. You're not going to change me. But seeing themselves identified more in a cluster of people or a large cohort of people their age, their peers, in terms of how, you know, experts are labeling them as opposed to, I like what you said, finding their identity in who they are biblically, right? Who they've been made by God to be. And I'll just say this, you know, as you say that, um, you know, the identity conversation is so big right now. When I get asked about what are the biggest issues youth workers and parents need to be aware of, that, you know, the stuff that kids are kind of percolating in or stewing in in the soup pot of culture, I would say the identity conversation is one of those because, as I've said before on the podcast, when I was a kid, I didn't even know what identity was. We didn't even use that word unless we were, you know, dressing up for Halloween and we were putting on a false identity. But now, um, you know, it's a huge, you got to create your identity. It's not given, you assume it. And this is one of the issues, you know, where I think what you just said there, Tim, we hear this more and more. Well, that's who my generation, you know, that's who we are. Uh, that's who I am. And so we, we uh, assume, you know, we choose this, I think, in many ways, and it's coming from perhaps the wrong place, although it could get things right, and I think there's benefits to it. Um, let me just make a comment here about generational theory, because when you study generations and generational segmentation, it really is a post-World War II phenomena in the sense that it all began with marketing, because, and this is where the baby boomers got their name, right? Uh, the war ends, World War II ends, the GIs come home, you know, they're, <laughs> they're, they're back with their wives, they're back with their girlfriends, whatever, and there's this baby boom. Suddenly all these kids, there's, you know, post-World War II economic prosperity, so you've got a growing population of young people with unprecedented, uh, you know, financial opportunities or, or disposable income or wealth. And marketers tap into this, and now rather than just marketing their products to people, now they're marketing them to generations. And so if you study the history of marketing, you see how this works itself out. And it's really um, caused divisions, I think, because we see ourselves now as more part of different generations than the human race. And I think it's crept into the church, and we can maybe unpack that as well. Um Tim, you talked about, you know, speaking negatively about younger generations. I have to say, I have been on the receiving end of the OK Boomer content uh, or, or comment. So, uh, Crystal, have you ever heard that? OK Boomer? You're, you're just, you're, you're so much more hip than I am. So, um, I don't know. What, <laughs> but it's, yeah. because I'm, it's because I'm right on the Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, the first time I heard it, I'll just tell you this. It was from Kenton, who used to work with us here. So that's not surprising, right, Chris? He just 
whenever he'd take issue with something, I'd say, okay, boomer, you know. So, um, yeah, had to discipline me. He's not working here anymore. So, Ken, if you're listening, give me a call, right? That's such a boomer comment. All right, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back to continue unpacking generational theory, the good, the bad, the ugly, as uh, we chat with Crystal Curgis. Stay with us. Youth workers, we're thrilled to announce that registration is now open for our second annual Northeast Youth Ministry Summit to be held from March 4 to 7, 2024 in beautiful Ligonier, Pennsylvania. This practical and hope-filled youth ministry training conference is co-sponsored by CPYU and our friends at Reformed Youth Ministries. Our theme this year is Cultivating Wisdom and Discernment. You will experience theologically sound youth ministry training, a great sense of community, rich times of worship, exposure to great resources, and opportunities to grow in your effectiveness at ministering to the emerging generations. Last year's first ever Northeast Youth Ministry Summit was a great time of being equipped, connected, and encouraged. Space is limited, so you will want to register soon. You can learn more, see the schedule, meet the speakers, and register at nymsummit.org. That's nymsummit.org. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're having a conversation here about generational theory and youth ministry and even parenting. Uh, so far, we've been chatting about this. And I forgot to ask Tim. Uh, Tim, what generation are you from? Uh, I'm from the millennial generation. Okay. Born what born year? 1982. Okay. Front end of the millennials. And by the way, uh, for those who might not be familiar with this, uh, some of the some of the labels and the dates. Now, this... This is somewhat fluid depending on who you talk to, but very, very closely aligned. The, the, you know, the, the differences are not that marked. So I'll just read what Jean Twenge has. She, she talks first about the silent generation, and they are, were born 1925 to 1945. The boomers, born 1946 to 64, so that's post-World War II. Uh, Gen Xers, born 1965 to 1979. Millennials are 80 to 94. Gen Z is 1995 to 2012. And then she labels this next generation as uh, the upcoming generation as the Polars, uh, born 2013 to 2029. So, by the way, I mean, I recommend the book. I think there's some great stuff there. And I will say this, that the overarching flow of the book, what she has seen, if I can summarize it very quickly, and I hope I do this fairly, is that from the silence to the polars, if we understand that arc of development, she says the changes that have come have really been influenced by uh, new technological developments. Obviously, you know, in later years, we think about the smartphone, the iPhone, that sort of thing. Moving forward, we'll be talking about artificial intelligence, the metaverse, transhumanism, who knows where that's going to go? And these things definitely do influence. But in an overarching way, she says we've moved from a more community-minded type of living with each other to uh, more of an individualistic type of world, which certainly when you think about identity and how we frame that or how young people are framing that, how the culture at large is framing that, you see that, you know, celebrating individualism. We've had lots of conversations on past podcasts about that. I would 
go back to uh, Carl Truman, and, and Chris will put a link up to this, you know, talking about expressive individualism and how that works itself out. So, again, one of the reasons why I like Twangy is she's she's not really pigeonholing people, but, you know, but doing that. Crystal, during the break, you had an interesting thought, an interesting comment. I thought it'd be good for you to state that so everyone can hear it, and let's let's work that out. Maybe we'll fire you some questions. Okay. So I assume you're talking about the human development. Yes. Yeah. Um, I only took a few psychology classes in college, which was a really long time ago. So forgive me for all the things I don't get right. But it felt like for a long time, we were talking about human development. That was sort of front and center, that these are the different stages of life from childhood, you know, a young adulthood, I don't know what we call the next one, old age. I don't want to call it that because that's the stage I'm in now. But, um, and we we pigeonhole people into a certain stage of life, which actually is a practice that goes way back to before the Middle Ages. As a medieval historian, I see this, that was very prevalent then as well. And I would love to talk sometime about how they defined youth because we would all laugh at it and how similar it is to today. But my understanding is that human development theories have fallen a little bit by the wayside as concrete, empirical, scientific things, because much of it was anecdotal. And I'm just wondering if this idea of generational theories is sort of slipped into that space and that that's what we're talking about now. In the end, maybe they're doing the same thing. They're putting people into a certain stage of not their life, but the life of everybody on the planet. And the one thing it doesn't take into account that we discussed a little bit earlier is the thing that I find interesting about generational theory is when they say, here are the main cultural influences that have shaped this generation, whatever it might be. But those same influences exist in my world too. So even though I'm not Gen Z or Gen whatever they all are, those things are influencing me as well. So we often pigeonhole the influences too and act like they are only working on one generation when they're working on all of us. At least that's my observation, maybe in different ways, but they're working on all of us. That's a good point. And I, I want to jump off of that and throw something at, at Jess and at Tim related to that, because you've worked with students, you both worked with students and you've worked with parents. And I know that, you know, one of the things I hear all the time now that parents are most concerned about are, you know, it's technology, smartphones, social media, that sort of thing. Have you found that parents that you work with tend to be concerned about those things in the lives of their kids, but largely ignorant to the influence of those things in their own lives? Yeah, yeah, I think uh, my experience here, so so I heard, a, I think it was a sociologist one time talk about um, how, you know, we as parents implement time limits on, uh, on the internet for our kids. Um, and we do so essentially as a means of harm reduction, because we actually, we, we know that it's harmful, uh, but we don't know what it is and we don't know what's out there. We don't know what potentially could happen. So we, we, from, from, yes, I would suggest like an ignorant standpoint, but a, well, I got to do something, right? Yeah. Like when I talked to her, I got to do something for my kids. So we're going to put it on these parameters, but, um, so what I what I've experienced with parents in particular, um, it's almost as though you can see those that are um, those that are are comfortable and 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 
believe in the sovereignty and providence of God in all things, that there's a bit of a, a piece of them, and they seem to be able to have the maturity um, or discernment, well, uh, the ability to discern what's wise. So, um, you know, to the point of, of all generations are being that are alive today are being influenced by these cultural uh, influences, I think there are those that just kind of have the ability to discern, well, this isn't wise. I'm not going to spend as much time. And then what I see in our students is makes sense, even just from a cognitive development perspective that they're, you know, maybe they don't have the the discernment or the wisdom or the, the perspective that, Hey, being on my phone for eight hours a day isn't a smart, a smart thing to do. Um, but I do think that uh, if anything, there's an underlining fear that parents have today, a, a fear of the unknown and a fear of, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to navigate this. You know, I you try to take my phone away. We, you, it's getting younger and younger that kids have these. And, um, and and as a parent of a junior high daughter and a son in grade six and a two and a half, like I'm living that world right now too, where it's easy for that fear to creep in and be the driving factor for the decisions we make in parenting. Can I follow up with that and just say, in terms of, uh, you know, parents seeing the fear, you seeing the fear, does it tend to lend itself more? And this is this springs off of you know Crystal's observation earlier. Uh, does it tend more to spark the parents to try to put limits, borders, and boundaries on their kids to protect them from danger and harm, and, and largely being very ignorant to to doing the same for themselves? Yeah. Uh, yes, <laughs> and I and I actually think uh, what I find with kids that seem to have a and I know the conversation is not about technology but I think that's such a, an influence uh, in what we see in these young people is um, there's been a shift in parenting where parents uh, maybe a shift I don't know but but it appears they're more concerned about being our kids friend so the fear that parents have more than you I think more than the being afraid of what is there in technology is being afraid to upset their kids and yeah. so, so instead of providing um, wise boundaries for our children, we're more like, okay, well, just don't be upset to do it. You need to, oh, you're the only one without a phone. You're the only one without social media. Okay. And we allow them to be exposed to these things. And we put the responsibility, the internet on our 12 year olds uh, when we don't navigate it well. And I would hundred percent agree. I think, um, you know, when Jesus speaks of, uh, you know, you, you, you say, you hear it say, do not commit adultery. I say to you, if you've got the intent in your heart, you, you've committed adultery, cut off your hand, gouge at your eye. Like, are we doing the hard stuff as parents to, 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 um, yeah, put in those boundaries in our own lives that then we can pass down to our kids. I don't know. If, I think there's areas in my life yeah. that I could improve in that area, you know? Yeah. But, uh, you, you sparked a bit before I go to Jess, you, you sparked a thought there where, um, I'm th- I'm thinking about generational theory, and you you made a comment about parents wanting to be their kids' friends, right? Like, is it, it is is it possible that generational theory has tapped into, or at least thrown a little bit of fuel on the fire, this fact that we don't want to get old, we don't want to die, which is a theological reality, right? Because we think about, you know, the, the human fall into sin and the consequences, you know, um, spiritual death, physical death, and the suffering sufferings of life. And we try to avoid that because not that's not the way it's supposed to be. I wonder if generational theory has helped to throw a little gasoline on the fire of that for parents where they're going. I don't want to be a boomer. I don't want to be an Xer. I want to be a millennial. And then you look at the way we live and we try to change our lives and look younger and the whole 
fashion and style industry? Just a thought. I don't know. I mean, is generational theory fueling that when we differentiate? Uh, I think think that's... Yeah, I think that's always been the case, Walt. Yeah, yeah. We just maybe didn't say, I want to be a millennial, but people have always wanted to be younger. Yeah, They used to mock older people centuries ago for dressing like the youth. Yeah, yeah. So just, I, I don't know that much really about human nature changes over time. Yeah, right, we may- right. And we're going to get to that. Yeah, you're Other right things, on. But, yeah. I, you know, I'm getting ready to... Um... Well, by the time this airs, it's probably over. But I'm going down to speak at the Legacy Grandparenting Summit in Dallas. It's a, I think some folks might be, you know, joining the live stream of that. But as I'm thinking about it and talking about culture, and I'm going to talk to them. Wayne Rice asked me to talk about, you know, cultural changes and some advice for grandparents since I'm a grandparent. And I pulled out a photo of my grandparents um, holding me when I was about a year old. And I just stared at the photo because they're they're in the photo. They're actually probably 15 to 16 years younger than I am right now. And I'm just thinking to myself, they look like they're 20 to 30 years older. Now, I don't know if it's just me being wishful um, and not recognizing the reality of things. But I just I don't ever remember my grandparents, you know, trying to be to be young. And I know that there are people, that's been the case. Like you said, Crystal, I think it's really ramping up in so many ways and marketing plays into that as well. All right, Jess, you were going to say something. Um, Yeah, I was talking, I was thinking more so in regards to like parent understanding of technology and how it influences them and the students. But even what you were saying just now is it will, we're all tend to, we're going to cling to the positive stereotypes and we're going to, we're like, oh, we're not part of the negative group of our generation like we're always just going to be wishful thinking um no matter what is being talked about us if it's our generation or our personality type or whatever we're always going to hold to the positive aspect of it um but in thinking of how parents interact with technology i think it's just as it's again it's our tendency to see it's easier to look out there of like oh the dangers for them um it's the whole matthew 7 kind of principle the fact of why do we look at the log in another person's eye not the speck in ours of it just so it's so easy to see and to judge the other generations of, oh, they're struggling or they're, they have no boundaries with social media. Um, and it's harder to have a look at actually what the dangers are in our life or how we're interacting with media, um, depending on what generation you're in or just, um, yeah, we're just so quick to judge yeah. how other people are interacting with culture. Um, and it's harder to take a look at ourselves. You know, you that raises a point. I, I made a list, and this is me, right? Okay, uh, people would expect this from me. My great concerns about generational theory, and you sort of alluded to that here, Jess, without mentioning the word I wrote, and I just wrote, I think it f- facilitates bigotry and bias uh, if we lean in it too much, you know. So, for example, if I hear someone say, all old people, and then whatever follows, or all teenagers, or we can even get into this by race, ethnicity, nationality. Um, You know, I just think, I I mean, it's bigotry in so many ways. And and we we cry foul, rightly so, at racial bigotry. But I think generational bigotry is an issue as well. Didn't Lewis, I, I may put you on a spot here, Crystal, didn't Lewis talk about generational snobbery? Wasn't that one of the well, he talks in the inner ring, he talks about the snobbery of like being, you know, wanting to be in the inner group. 
Yeah. <clears throat> I don't know, but if you gave me two minutes, I could yeah. find out. Yeah, I did. I did. Well, you have two minutes, but whether you find out or not, I mean, this is one of the things that I that I remember reading about Lewis oh. was yeah, generational snobbery. Just I when he when he talked about that we assume that we today yes are so we know so much more than the generations before us. When actually, if you think about it, generations ago, almost everybody could speak Latin and today can. So he was he was talking in big like historical epochs of time. Yeah, that was a problem for sure. Yeah. And and I'm just going to say, if anybody believes that he's wrong, just read a more uh, modern text and then read something written by the Puritans. And you're going to realize just how smart they were and how shallow we are. I mean, it's it's amazing when I read them, um, you know, especially when it comes to theology or popular theology, what we try to what we try to write. Um, you just mentioned sort of age bigotry, making grand being statements about other generations, and I'll I'll go into my little historical mode again. Um, that that also is very common in the 1600s past preachers were often writing about isn't it a shame if you've gotten into your teens which was a phrase that they used but you're not able yet to recite these part of the catechism sort of the assumption that you should be able to but you can't and you don't because you're a teenager and you don't care or to think that you're too old to be categorized um and a lot of assumptions about that whatever epoch of history or ever whatever year they were living in they assumed that it was the worst time mm. and the hardest time to be alive and so none of the youth were going to survive it it was the end of all good things that feels like a, a thing that's repeated over and over again throughout history as well um but things that are repeated aren't interesting <laughs> so we have to give them a new name every generation or so and make it something brand new we have a new idea when really it's just an old idea that's being restated yeah let me uh we're pretty close to taking a break i think so let me i'm I'm gonna fire off what i have on my list and if there's anything that jumps out at you folks let's come back and talk about it uh, i've got some other ideas for how to use generational theory properly i want to hear from jess and from tim on that but here's my here's my list okay i just it's random it's not in order uh, I mentioned the bigotry item, you know, facilitating bias. So we say all old people, all young people, which is completely unfair because you enter into a relationship with someone. You have assumptions that could be way off. Uh, speculation. Um, it's speculation on what might be versus what actually is. I think it can become self-fulfilling. Tim sort of mentioned this when he's talking to the middle schoolers. Well, that's just the way we are, right? So I hear about it. Now I embrace it and I live into it. I think it pigeonholes kids. It doesn't allow them to be individuals. Rather, they're seen as part of a larger group, sometimes misseen, not seen clearly. I believe it causes can cause us to overlook uh, personality and background experiences. So we were actually talking during the break about, you know, how each kid is an individual. Everyone's a story. I often tell students when I started out in youth ministry, if I had 30 middle school kids come into a room and sit down, I'd look at them all and think they were all the same. Um, now, please understand what I mean by that. I, I, what I was saying was I was experientially, I was discounting um, the, the role of their you know, home situations, the role of their life experiences, and how that would have shaped or misshaped them. Um, 
So I think that's a big thing as well. We talked about um, adverse childhood experiences. I think we did a podcast on that, Chris. So if you would if you would add a link to that, uh, adverse childhood experiences. There's some valuable valuable information that comes out on of that that helps us understand kids individually. Then the other thing is. Uh, Yuri Bronfenbrenner, who was a developmental expert and theorized uh, what he called ecological development theory, which is not stage theory, which is what uh, you know, Crystal and I were, or what Crystal was mentioning earlier. Um, he, he talked more about influence theory and how things influence us for better or for worse. So, and by the way, that takes into account sin, which is huge in this discussion because this is one of the things that I think you know, how and Strauss really missed out on. They don't have a biblical worldview, so they're not understanding that we are already broken, you know, original sin, and that the biggest problem facing every generation since our first parents is what? It's human sin. It's our brokenness, our inclination, our default setting to do the wrong thing. All right, just a couple more. I think it causes division. It undermines intergenerational ministry. Hey, how have we lived into this and segmented the generations in our churches? And I think we're starting to wake up and realize, boy, that was a bad move. Um, Obviously, there has to be, you know, unique youth group settings, Sunday school settings, age group like that. But at the same time, I think we need to be together and worship together. Um, Yeah, so... I don't think, I'll just end with this, I don't think it takes into account uh, theological realities, obviously, and then uh, cultural context as well. That was one of the things back in the late 90s when I was reading Howen Strauss and I was writing some responses to them. They weren't taking into account uh, the rise of postmodernism and, and you know moral relativism and, and the loss of truth, which I think plays into this as well. So, um We're going to take a break. When we come back, uh, we're going to get a lot more practical here. We've been speaking theoretically about theory, so we're going to liven it up a bit when we come back, and we want to give you some some thoughts on on, uh, how to use generational theory in good ways and then how to maybe jettison it and not lean into it so much in some practical ways as well. So stick with us. If you enjoy listening to Youth Culture Matters and would like to support the ongoing efforts of this ministry, you can do so by visiting cpyu.org giving to make a donation. Your prayers and financial support make this podcast possible. Okay, we're back. Now, before we jump back into this conversation, I want to let you know I've got a friend in here in the studio along with Chris and myself, our friend John Barry. John, welcome. Thank you. John, Glad to be here. You, you are, you're doing youth work as a volunteer, right, at our church, Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster. Yes. Um, what, what I always ask this question, what do you prefer, middle school or high school? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, the way we do things at Westminster is we start with seventh grade and then we move up with them every year. So okay. we... We look to build long-term relationships with the kids, and that's I, I, I don't know that I have a strong preference for middle school or high school, but I love being able to build long-term relationships. But you with have kids. a small group now. I have a small group. Yeah. What grade are they in? They're you in ninth grade right now, so, so they're had... a lot of fun. They're kind of transitioning yeah. between that middle school mindset and that high school yeah. mindset. Yeah. Well, the reason I, I I'm asking John some questions is you were at our Northeast Youth Ministry Summit last year in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. I know uh, we want to let people know about that. It's going to happen again. 
uh, March 4 to 7. Is that right, Chris? March 4 to 7 of 2024 in Ligonier. You can go to nymsummit.org to learn more about it. Our theme is Cultivating Wisdom and Discernment. John, you were there last year. Any encouragement or I think you have good things to say. About <laughs> I do have good things yeah, to say. Yeah. yeah, it was a great experience uh, in, in multiple ways. I think just taking the time to, to step back, to think about ministry, to be with other people that are focused on youth ministry, and to think about what we can do to better love these kids, I think is so important. To take advice from others who are in the trenches together, to hear about their experiences, to have breakout sessions focused on specific areas that really are tailored to individual ministry struggles, to areas of personal growth. It was a, it was a really encouraging time spiritually for me um, to, to step back, and I know that it had a big impact on our youth ministry as a whole as we were able to, to dig into areas where we have potential to grow and just to build relationships with other, other people in the trenches with us. Yeah, yeah, and we had you, you had a, actually uh, the team came. Yep. So there was a, a large group of the volunteers. Not everybody was able to come, and that was very helpful. And it was fun to have time for our groups to uh, scheme and strategize together right in the moment as they're you know planning to head back. Um, I, I'll just say this. One of the great things about this was it was not huge, um, and that's by design. Yep. And we're at a camp setting, which is a, and it was a great setting, a beautiful setting in Ligonier. And one of the things that came out of it was the community building that took place around the meals uh, was amazing. And that, that was, I'm looking forward to that again. So Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think just having the space to be able to build relationships and interact with other people, um, learn from their experiences and uh, yeah. taking the time and space to have that. I, I like to say that, that the things actually get accomplished in our inefficiencies. Yeah. And so having that extra space uh, to be able to get to know people, especially around the dinner table, uh, was just a blast. Yeah. If that's true about inefficiencies, I've, I've got a lot of good things that can happen in my future. Because <laughs> my inefficiencies, it's a long, long list. So yeah, thanks, John. And, and again, people who want to uh, check this out, go to NYM Summit. Is it nymsummit.org? Or, yeah, nymsummit.org. I'm drawing a blank here. I couldn't remember if it was .com. nymsummit.org. You can link to it from our uh, homepage at cpyu.org as well. Cultivating Wisdom and Discernment. We're excited to hear from Dr. John Curry and a real great guest along with everybody else who will be there, uh, Darby Strickland, who is going to take us into uh, the issue of abuse, which is huge. We're all wondering about that. And it's very helpful what, what uh, she's done. So let's get back to, thanks, John. Let's get back to our conversation here. And um, Crystal, we were going to lean into you here coming out of the break. You had some, some great comments, thoughts. Well, I just, I just wondered if generational theory, I'm sure some people who are just academics and think that way want to learn new things, but it feels like maybe it's in response to what was perhaps a straw man argument. Like we don't know each other well enough. How will we know each other better? Let's, let's get this information. And my question would be if after all of our generational theory research and books and podcasts and data and posts and everything else, do we know people better than we did before? Do we, like was just mentioned, do we know better how to build relationships and be with other people? Has it brought about any improvement or is it just we have some information and knowledge? I don't know that I'm a better youth worker today 
because of having read a book about Gen Z. Reading a book is never going to replace the hours that it takes to spend with someone and get to know them. And it feels like because you can package generational theory in kind of flashy things that it has the potential and has in some instances taken center stage and moved individual people off to the wings or as a backdrop when it should be totally the other way around. If it's going to serve us at all, it can only serve us as a backdrop, as an informational piece. But if we had to ditch one thing or the other, I would say we ditch relational theory or generational theory, sorry, generational theory and spend more time with people. That that would be a win in the end um, because knowing about a generation is not going to help me know people any better unless I do the hard, long work of spending time with those people. Mm. Well, and this is where I want to shift gears and really get practical here because I think, I, you know, we've talked a little bit about the good, the bad, the ugly. And I think I, I like what you say about a backdrop, putting it in the background. And, you know, it can be helpful certainly in that ways. But I want to lean into you, Crystal, uh, also Tim and Jess, since you folks have been and are boots on the ground youth workers. How can we best make that happen? What are some good suggestions you have for us to get to know kids? How have you all worked to get to know your students, their families individually, and maybe been able to push the generational theory and the pigeonholing you know, in the, in the, into the background uh, as a helpful thing while really pursuing relationships and really getting to know students? So I don't care who goes first, but go ahead. Um, I found it most helpful to do both small group discipleship focus to see how kids interact with their friends, um, asking more group discussion questions, but also a high focus on one-on-one -on -one relationships. So just asking um, a kid to go for a walk, to grab a bite to eat. Um, one practical advice that I always used to give our uh, um, my youth leaders is that especially when you're getting to know a kid, do an activity together, go on a walk together, because it's so intimidating for a 13-year-old to be trying to make eye contact with you and ask answer personal questions about themselves. Mm -hmm. So I would often go on walks or try to do paint or do something together. Um, and common questions I would ask them would be, um, what do you like about school? What do you not like about school? Asking about their classes and asking the why, like, why do you like that? Why do you not like that? Asking what shows and what movies they like and asking the why, why like, what about it do you like? Or what about it do you not like? Um, asking about their friends, who they like, and who, what kind of personalities are their friends, or what do you like to do together with your friends? Just being curious about the different aspects, but really making sure to guess the why questions of why, why do you like this? Why do you not like it? Those are kind of, that's how it's been really helpful for me to get to know students. Because um, I'm even so quick to put people in boxes depending on their family. If I know their parents, I assume the kid is going to be this kind of way, where so quickly you realize that kids are very different than their siblings and have different opinions than their parents. Um, so you just have to be curious and ask, ask the why questions. Yeah. I love that. So, so open-ended questions. That's some great advice that sometimes we just forget. And uh, just the, the one big overarching question, I think you got to this is, you know, tell me your story and get specifics about the stories as well. Tim, what about you? Yeah, I love that. Uh, I love what Jess said there. I think um, if everyone could, uh, every youth worker could work in a school that would also be helpful because because uh, I have this this advantage where you know for 10 months out of the year I have students around me for 
30 to 40 hours a week. Uh, but, but it, it is even, in, even in this context, it's still being intentional. Um, as far as, I don't know, asking God for discernment. And, um, when I'm with a student, I, I really like what, what Jess said there. And I think, um, using, using phrases like, tell me more about that. And, uh, my propensity or, or tendency to have a student say something and inside think, wow, what a waste of time. That's kind of dumb. You should not do that and want to just say that to them right away. Um, but just trying to trying to get myself to a place where I'm like, that sounds really important to you. You know, can you can you tell me more about that? Can you unpack that a little bit for me? And I think what I've found is over the course of time and through, um, you know, intentionally developing these relationships, opportunity does come where God provides me a time where I can speak wisdom, where I can challenge, where I can encourage, uh, where I can affirm. But I think the assumption, maybe it's just me, but I think the assumption of some youth workers, if not many of us, is that we automatically have a voice in a student's life. And uh, because of our position, we just get to tell you, um, even though it might be true, uh, and not that I'm ever shying away from speaking truth, I probably I probably lean more towards the that I'm going to just tell you what's true and it's going to sting in the moment, but you'll thank me 10 years down the road. Uh, but have l learning that, you know, um, yeah, that, that there's just more opportunity than we think. And, and I think providing kids that, that opportunity to uh, kind of work through th some things. Now, um, obviously that comes with, uh, yeah, you want to be discerning. You want to be careful. You want to be important, um, uh, uh, intentional, but, the, the other thing that I found really helpful is really working to partner with parents, um, acknowledging the parents being the key disciplers in the students' lives, um, building the relationships with the parents. So when I have a specific student who has been brought to me for a specific reason, I am often with the parent, talking to the parent, finding out what they would like or how I can support them. Um, and, uh, you know, and again, but I, I feel like I'm in an advantage because we're, we're coming to school parents have to sign our statement of faith, that kind of thing. So it got that relationship, but, um, and then, and then finally, I think, um, you know, even when it comes to generational, generational theory and, and maybe what might be helpful, I think, you know, there's lots of the talk of the expressive individualism and I love Truman's work on that. And I think what I've come to realize is, um, there are a number of individuals and, and, uh, their individuality can't be ultimate, but it is important. And I think, you know, uh, Crystal kind of touched on this too, but just like these are individuals, these are these are kids, and I think as soon as they sense that I care about them as a person, uh, guards seem to fall, and, and the relationship seems to develop a little bit quicker. Where there's more opportunity to to speak the truth and to talk about stewardship, and to you know, um, I think yeah, I yeah, because I think the intent of the heart. There's nothing new under the sun, as we know from yeah. Ecclesiastes, and so so trying to. Uh, help our kids navigate what they think is brand new, shiny and bright from a biblical perspective. That's like, Hey, you know, God was there when this has happened in the past. God is with you today and God will be there in the future. And none of these things are catching him off guard. But anyways, yeah. That's it. yeah, good. Um, I'm a boomer. I can say that Confession. out loud. <laughs> I didn't actually know what I was until I wrote that blog post and I thought, Oh, I better figure out what I am so I can, comment on this stuff live into I school ministry and they are z's right are they gen z's um for the most part yes the the gap between that disappears 
if I know how to listen well and ask good questions. The generational gaps are gone because everybody wants to be heard and everybody wants a chance to talk about, be asked so they can talk about what's going on. And so in my mind, if any youth worker, any parent, any teacher learns how to be a better listener and learns how to ask good questions, you are positioned to have really good ministry. And I found that I tend to do whether I realize this or not at first, three things when I listen. I either invite a kid to go deeper into the specific thing they're talking about, tell me more, those kind of questions, Jess, that you mentioned, or why did you feel that way? Or why do you think that happened? So I can go deeper onto whatever that thing is. I can go wider and ask them about the other people who were involved. Why do you think that person felt that way? Why do you think they responded that way? Or when the moment is right, I can pivot to something else. I can tell that this maybe isn't really the thing that they want to be talking about, that there's something underneath and I can help pivot with another question. If we know how to do those three things, we can have any conversation with any person of any generation and get to know them better in a way that will far transcend what any book is ever going to tell us about their generation. I think that's true. Yeah. I like how you said gaps disappear, gaps disappear. I want to go back to Jess because, Jess, you had said something about age-based ministries. And I think sometimes with the way we divide people in the church, we we basically are throwing fertilizer on those gaps and really causing them to grow. Did, did you have some thoughts on age-based ministries? I think, obviously, age-based ministries organizationally, they make sense. Um, but I think the temptation with it then is to cater to a specific age group. And I think it ultimately the temptation is to lower the bar of like, you take the generational theory, you say, oh, this is who they are. This is what the classic stereotypes are, depending on what age you're talking about. And it's um, the temptation because we want to meet people where they're at, but that will lead us to lower the bar and to over, um, yeah, over generalize our message, over contextualize our um the hopes and discipleship strategies where I think um, instead, yeah, instead of getting to know the people and understanding that like middle schoolers need worship and they need to learn how to pray and they need to learn how to read scripture. Yes. We have to contextualize it to their learning um, where they're at with their brain development, but that doesn't mean we need to cater to them and lower the bar from where they at the same way with our seniors ministry and our parent ministry. And we need to, yeah, continue meeting people where they're at, but pushing them and raising the bar so that they will grow. Mm-hmm. So I think that's just, yeah, the danger I see when we overemphasize generational theory within age-based uh, ministries. Yeah, yeah, this is so good. I we need, to, we need to bring this to a close and wrap it up, and I'm going to share this. As I was thinking about generational theory, we sometimes forget the common threads that make us all the same, right? We're all created by God for a relationship with God. We're created in the image of God. This is where we need to find our identity. For those of us, obviously, who are in Christ, we find our identity and who we are as adopted sons and daughters of God. And that spans, you know, generations, and it spans generations not just in the time that we live now with who's living, but generations over time. And so there is this common thread there. And I pulled a couple of books off my shelf that were written by Douglas Copeland. I don't know if anybody's read anything by Copeland, but Canadian guy. And Copeland's the guy who actually coined the term Generation X in his book back, uh, I believe, oh, 
man, it was really in the early 90s, maybe 90 or 91. I have, a, I have that book. Well, he wrote another book that I would often quote. I haven't quoted it for 10 or 15 years, uh, but it was a book called, a little novel called Life After God. And the last page, I'm just going to read this because this is the commonality, right? This is how the book ends. And so let's understand what's common to all of us, regardless of generation. And he writes this. He says, now here is my secret. This is the narrator speaking. Here is my secret. I tell it to you with an openness of heart that I doubt I shall ever achieve again. So I pray that you are in a quiet room as you hear these words. My secret is that I need God, that I am sick and can no longer make it alone. I need God to help me give because I no longer seem to be capable of giving, to help me be kind as I no longer seem capable of kindness, to help me love as I seem beyond being able to love. And so the cry for redemption It's there. The groanings that we read about in Romans 8 of all creation, it's the groanings of all generations. And so uh, let's keep that in mind and look for the commonality. Generational theories, we've said here, is helpful. I think it's helpful to read Gene Twenge's book, Generations. Um, But I, I would recommend, and I think these folks would agree with me, don't lean so much into it that you forfeit your knowledge of individuals and what is common to all of us. And we did warn you about some of the some of the aspects of generational theory that um, really aren't helpful that can that can undo moving forward in our ministry. So I want to say thank you, uh, Jess. Thanks, Tim. Thanks. Welcome, Crystal. Thank you. Thank you. Would you, Crystal? Would you just mention the title of the book on adolescence that you wrote? Oh, it's called "In Search of Adolescence." a new look at an old idea about the history of adolescence. Yeah. That could actually be the title for a book that older people are, are, you know, writing a, a tips and in tricks for, yeah. How to stay young, right. In search of adolescence again. That's not what it's about. Are. I know <laughs> it's not. I know. Uh, I'll write that one. I'm living in the midst of that. Right. We see that all around us, but thank you. And thanks for writing. That was, it was a great book. And I've sat in on some of your seminars on that, how we look, uh, how we look backwards. So, Chris, uh, thank you for taking care of things here. As we mentioned, always any of the books, any articles, anything at all that's mentioned on the podcast, uh, Chris will include links on the homepage for this player. You can go find that at cpyu.org. Again, that's cpyu.org. John, thanks for uh, popping in and talking about the Northeast Youth Ministry Summit. We're looking forward to that. For all of you who are listening, thank you, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Youth Culture Matters. Thanks for joining us for Youth Culture Matters, a podcast from the Center for Parent Youth Understanding. If you'd like to learn more about today's youth culture, visit our website at cpyu.org. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, email us at podcast at cpyu.org.